you know, it sounds horrible, but if it's happened with all the sequelae of you losing space and by changing, it's, that is a big deal. I mean, this patient might be looking at ortho, might be looking at a rehab. Who's paying yeah. for that? Chances are you are. Yeah. So for a two minutes screen that you can do, and once you get good at it, it's, it's really, really quick. Um, just to buy yourself that peace of mind and being able to inform the patient and gain proper consent when you're restoring the terminal tooth or maybe the one in front, that two minutes is, is worth it in my opinion. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Have you ever prepared the second molar or the last molar of the patient's mouth for a crown? And when you've checked the occlusal reduction, you get the patient to bite together, and it's as if you never did any occlusal reduction. You're thinking, what the hell is going on? I swear I just sunk a two millimeter burr into this tooth, and now it's like there's hardly any space there. What's going on? Has that ever happened to you? Has that problem bitten you? Have you had that dreaded phone call from the lab saying, uh, we need a bit more space here, doc? If you experienced this, you probably searched it and, and spoke to prosthodontists and, and got some information about last tooth in the arch syndrome, where that space magically disappears. What's behind that? Why does that happen? Why, if you're not careful, it could happen to you. It could happen to anyone. I know some great dentists and it's happened to them. So no one is immune to this. However, the topics that me and Mahmoud Ibrahim, my guest today, will make sure that you will A, be able to screen when this issue might happen, have a conversation with your patient ahead of time, and sometimes consider a change of treatment plan because you know that as soon as you prep the second molar, you're likely to lose space and to have that knowledge and screening for assessment is just absolutely fundamental. And of course, we also talk about what actually, what do you do when that does happen? How do you manage that situation when you've lost that space? So yet again, it's an occlusion-based episode with my good buddy, Mahmoud Ibrahim. We're actually working really hard at the moment where we're creating a huge project called OBAB. It stands for Occlusion, Basics and Beyond. And the, the vision is like really, really bold. Like they say that when you when you dream, if your dreams don't scare you, then what's the point? So the dream that's scaring me and Mahmood and what we're working really hard behind the scenes, like think 4am wake ups and, and late nights to, you know, surrounding our clinical dentistry that we do and family lives is, is building OBAB, the occlusion course that will start from the very foundation, single tooth stuff. Think when I place a crown, what should my dots look like? How can I plan to go beyond the single crown at what point later like modules four and five raising the ovd so we've got so much plan in terms of the most comprehensive thorough tangible and best occlusion course there is in the world in the universe ever that's the dream so it's an extremely bold claim so give us a few months as we're kind of halfway through at the moment we've got the beta testers you've got people like tiff koreshi giving us advice and coaching us as well to make sure that this course is going to be absolutely sensational so you'll get a bit of a flavor of that today but we will go in in depth into this so you will feel much more confident about last tooth in the arch syndrome recognizing screening and managing such complications in practice but hopefully like i said after this episode it's never going to happen to you so that was a longer introduction hello producer Rati. i'm jazz galati if you're new to the podcast welcome it's great to have you to the usual listeners get some onions get ready it's gonna be a good one here the protrusive dental pearl i have you is very much related to this any type of dentistry that you do including full coverage occlusion appliances or partial coverage or anything that you do has a risk 
of changing the patient's bite. In fact, sometimes you might have even met a patient who said, you know what, my front teeth used to touch together, but now they don't touch anymore. And my bite has changed. They didn't have any restorative dentistry or splints or anything, but they had experienced this bite change. So what's behind that? Why does that happen? Well, there's loads of things that could be changed at the condylar level, for example. But how do you know who's at risk? So I always want to look at posterior stability. Now, what I mean by that is imagine someone with really well-defined cusps. What kind of population have a well-defined cusp? Young people, right? They don't have that much wear. And young people have got these lovely premolars and very acute inclines and, and, and very cuspy teeth. So think of that term, cuspy. Cuspy teeth on their molars and premolars. Therefore, when they bite together, if their bite was to keep changing for some reason, actually, as the mandible closes into the maxilla, it's those cusps, those well-defined cusps that guide the lower jaw and the lower cusps in to the maximum intercussal position, which is their normal bite. So if someone has got that really nice bite, i.e. like a classic class one Andrews Keys with not that much wear, I'm going to say that that is a very occlusally stable patient. So you're saying, okay, Jazz, where's the tip though? The tip is watch out for the opposite of that patient. Watch out for the patient that's got quite flat teeth. And actually, they might not have a well-defined bite. When they bite together, you see lots of spaces and embrasures between their back teeth. And there's only like point contact. And there's nothing really guiding the lower jaw into the morphology of the upper teeth. This is a population of patients whom are more susceptible to the last tooth in the arch syndrome, which we're discussing today. These are the group of patients that even if you give a full coverage tanner appliance, their bite might change for good, i.e. they take the splint off and their bite is, has been changed because they already have this feature that their teeth don't mesh together very well. They don't mate together very well. And therefore, they've kind of got these multiple bites. And because of this lack of occlusal stability, you're at risk. So the pearl is, have a look at your patient. Have they got good occlusal stability or poor occlusal stability? And if you're carrying out, let's say, an occlusal appliance, even though it's a full coverage occlusal appliance, your bite could still change. So I would go back to Splint Timber series. So go through the podcast, old episodes, Splint Timber, remember episode 39, 40 onwards. Uh, we covered a whole series about occlusal appliances and watching out for bite changes and stuff. You can go to that as well if you want to learn more about these things. But just assess your patient's occlusal stability, make an entry in the notes. But of course, this is something that you gather from photographs as well. Now, let's join Dr. Mahmoud Ibrahim and talk about last tooth in the arch syndrome. Mahmoud, my brother from another mother, welcome back to the Protrusion Podcast yet again for occlusion. How are you? I'm good, man. Thank you very much for having me again. We left off last time saying that we need to cover last tooth in the arch. And literally someone the other week messaged me saying, Jazz, uh, you, you, you mentioned in Mahmoud you're going to cover last tooth in the arch. Has it happened yet? I was like, oh, cried a better message about Mahmoud. Mahmoud, okay, come on. It, it, people, yeah. The people out there want it, so let's make it happen. Um, and so just remind those who maybe, for some reason, have not listened to Basics of Occlusion Part 1 and 2. It was Part 2 that we did it together. We covered some really cool concepts uh, at, at that point, you know, just building on the foundations of, of that Part 1. Who are you, where do you work, and, and why do you love occlusion so much, man? <laughs> well, okay, my name is Mahmoud uh, Ibrahim, and um, I'm a general dentist. I work in Telford and in Birmingham soon and um, I've been qualified since 2005. My journey in occlusion kind of started really about five years in once I've decided I actually want to stay a dentist. I'm not going to repeat all that. For occlusion for me really is born out of the fact that I don't want my stuff to fail. I don't want the patients coming in with broken restorations. And it fascinated me because of its relation to physics and forces and things like that, which is something I've always loved at school. So yeah, it's, it's always attracted me and it's a very poorly understood subject because it is a bit abstract. You know, it's not as easy as step-by-step, step, one, two, three, bonding or whatever it is. 
So, yeah, it's... It, it can get very philosophical, and, and, and it's the double-edged sword. It's, it's, a, it's an annoying thing, but it's also cool just to speak with people from different occlusal religions and camps, and hey, how do they approach this, and how, how these other guys approach it? And I think me and you, what we're putting together, as, as those of you have heard of the announcement a few episodes ago, that Mahmoud and I, we're, we're putting something together quite comprehensive when it comes to occlusion, starting from the very basics, occlusion, basics, and beyond. And uh, there's something we're very excited to put together, and so it's, I've been spending a lot more time with you. It's been great. Uh, yeah. And discussing these philosophies and having some what was it shawarma wraps and discussing uh, you know canine guidance <laughs> yeah. and stuff and all that kind of stuff. So we've we've been doing all that. It's been great. Uh, but today let's very much cover last tooth in the arch syndrome. So Mahmoud, just to set the scene, right? Most dentists they probably learn about this when it actually happens. So when they prep a second molar. It doesn't have to be a second molar, obviously, but let's let's go for the classical scenario. They prep a second molar and they swore that they prepped, you know, two millimeters or whatever, right? And they get the patient to bite together for the bite reg and wait, all that space or most of that space is now lost. And they're like, wait, did I just dream that I prepped for like last, you know, 20, 30 minutes, this tooth, did that actually happen? And then they're like, oh, there's a such thing as a last tooth in the arch syndrome. And then they have to like have that very awkward and difficult conversation with the patient when they haven't understood themselves what's happening. So just... Describe what is this phenomenon and how did you? I want to know how did you learn about it? Did it happen to you first and then you learned about it? Were you always smart about it from the start? Uh, I mean, I'm not gonna say I was smart about it, but what does what, what happened to me is for a period of five or six years, I was truly obsessed with occlusion and I read absolutely everything I could. So, luckily for me, I discovered a lot of these pitfalls before it actually happened to me. However, saying that, I did get caught out anyway. And it will happen. I got caught out by a upper second molar. I was prepping the two teeth, six and seven. I did my screening and according to my screen, it was on the other side. But, mm -hmm. and we'll get to this, some people actually have center correlation contact points or points of initial contact or prematurities into CR on both sides. It can happen. So luckily for me, I lost a little bit of space on the provisional and I was able to prep a little bit more, but we'll get to that. Um, mm -hmm. To sort of describe what last tooth in the arch syndrome is, I'll just take you back a step. The loyal Petrucerati would have listened to Basics of Occlusion Part 2, but if you haven't or maybe you've forgotten, it's important to describe what centric relation is because that's how it started. You know, at the last podcast, we said, what are the uses of centric relation? And this topic came up. So just as a quick reminder, centric relation, I think Jazz, you and I both like the description of the condyle as snug as possible up in the fossa. And really the technical definition is, you know, it's a jaw relationship, it's irrespective of the teeth, and it's where the condyle sits up against the anterior eminence of the, the anterior wall of the eminence. fossa. Yeah, in the glandular fossa. But practically, for me, it's if the back teeth are out of the way and the lateral pterygoid muscle is fully relaxed, the elevator muscles contract and they seat the condyle up into the fossa as far as it'll go. The reason that's important is because in 90% of the patients, or 90% of people, when that condyle is fully seated and the patient closes, they're only going to touch on one or two teeth. Now, to get all your teeth together, which is something you need to do to swallow, or as many of your teeth as possible together, usually the lateral pterygoid contracts and it pulls the condyle down the eminence a little bit to be able to get all your teeth together. So essentially, that initial contact on those one or two teeth programs the lateral pterygoid to contract and bring the condyle down so that 
eat the rest of your teeth meet. Now this becomes a learned response and your lateral pterygoid do it automatically. So last teeth in the arch syndrome comes in when you inadvertently, not knowingly, remove that initial point of contact and in a way you lose some of that programming of the lateral pterygoid. So the lateral pterygoid either doesn't feel the need to or forgets how to pull the condyle down and essentially the condyle seats, maybe not fully, maybe just a little bit, but it'll seat up and back a little bit. And what happens is your condyles attach to the rest of your mandible. So as the condyle goes up, the rest of the mandible goes up a little bit, up and back. And let's say you're prepping a lower second molar, that's gone up a little bit. So what's happened to your occlusal clearance that you created? You've lost some of it, or all of it, if you're unlucky. And that's what last tooth in the arch syndrome is. And like you said, it doesn't have to be the last tooth. You know, it could be a, a six, it could be a seven, it could be a five. But the important thing is there is a way to screen for it. And we'll get to that. But that's, that's what it is in a nutshell. Yeah, and uh, I just want to, for, for those who listened so far, and they're still, you know, these terms can get really confusing. I like the fact that you started off with the definition of central relation, but just some other terms that people may be familiar with from dental school, maybe RCP, retruded contact position. So we don't tend to use that term anymore, even though dental schools might do, because it implies that the condyle needs to be shoved all the way back, you know, the cliche era of dentistry. It's, it's not the case. We know that it's more anterior superior. And it's interesting how the definitions have changed over time. So again, go back to that episode, basic seclusion part two, to get more of a sense of that. So uh, RCP, the, you, you mentioned the point of initial contact, the centric relation contact point. So whenever the muscles are relaxed, and the sort of the condyle supposedly is in a bit of rotation, you know, we can debate all that if you really like to. But it's that retruded contact position, which you may have heard of before, or me and my mood like centric relation contact position and at that position where you've got to start screening and we're going to come on to that in terms of your prevention. So we're going to talk about how to screen for this, but maybe, well, I think we should. I was going to say, yeah, let's go for that first because someone might actually come onto this podcast when this actually has happened to them. And, and the bit they really want the most is, wait, crap, what do I do now? <laughs> you yeah. go, Mahmoud, Jazz, get to the bit where, what do I, what do I, what do I tell my patient? Because I don't want to prep yeah. anymore. If I prep anymore, I'm going to see red. Uh, and so how am I going to do this this crown circle restoration if, if the bite's changed and, and, and whatnot? So I, I guess the plate, so for, for that person, maybe just wait a bit. We'll get to that about what if you, you know, slip up or you didn't know about this and you've joined this podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast, by the way. Uh, I'm sorry that you're joining us in a distress scenario, but we will, get, we will cover that. Don't worry. So yeah. Mahmoud, who is susceptible? Who is at risk? Because just like you said, 90% plus of people have a first point of contact, i.e. their normal bite, their MIP, the maximal intercostal position, uh, is when most of their teeth or lots of their teeth touch together. It's the bite of best fit, which is going to be different to when you put their condyle into central relation, and that's a different bite. So 90% of people fit into this category. But who is actually at risk of this happening to? So let's start off by the fact that you have to be preparing a tooth for this to happen, you know, to you in, in, in the context we're talking about, right? We, yeah, I mean, you have to be altering a tooth somehow. I mean, it could be that you're, you're filling it. It could be that you're extracting it. You know, if the tooth is unrestorable and it's infected and it's gonna come out, I mean, you're gonna take it out. But yes, as long as you're altering the surface that's contacting in centric relation, this could happen. The highest risk is when the difference between the centric relation and the maximum intercostal position is large, okay? So essentially, luckily for us, again, most of the people that have a centric relation to MIP shift, that shift is a millimeter at most, okay? For most people. If you think about it, if the condyle can only really move up a millimeter, even if that's completely vertically, which it won't be, it's at an angle, the chances of you losing enough space for it to be a problem are very low. So 
In my opinion, you want to be screening whenever you're prepping a molar. If you want to be really extra, you can check it when it's a premolar as well. But last tooth in an arch, definitely check. You know, if it's second tooth in, it might be worth a check as well. And once you know whether or not they have a big shift, then you can figure out what to do. But I would always screen a last tooth and maybe the one in front. Okay. We can get onto how we do that. Well, I, I think before we choose to restore that tooth, you know, could be the second last tooth or the last tooth in the arch. And we're thinking, okay, I, listen, I remember I listened to that podcast, so I better, I better do this check now to make sure it is a patient at risk or not. But just like you said, this might be happening to us in the population all the time, but the differences and, and changes are so small that, you know, we, we don't notice it as much. So thankfully, our patients are kind to us. And actually, you know what? This has never happened to me. I actually got way smarter to this before it actually happened to me. And I started screening before it ever happened to me. So it's never actually happened to me. And then I've used different techniques like the island prep and stuff, which we can come to later to, to prevent it happening. So it's, it's never happened to me. But I guess it might have happened to me unknowingly. But it's happened to such a small degree that you, we don't actually notice because the seating is not significant. So let's say we're preparing a tooth. Uh, how would you check if that tooth is the centriculation contact point? And therefore, how can you check to what degree the slide is? Okay, so my preference is to use something called a leaf gauge. What I'll do is I'll just search on my screen. Mm -hmm. just so we're going to make it very uh, tangible for those uh, listening at yeah. the moment. Obviously, we're going to describe everything we're seeing because the loyal producer yeah. who started out, started out on Apple and, and, and Spotify and whatnot, Stitcher, etc. We're going to make sure we never forget you. But for those who Absolutely. are watching YouTube right now, then uh, yeah, you know, you get to see some visuals as well as a commentary. So uh, essentially, a leaf gauge is a bunch of sort of plastic leaves and you can add or take away leaves to make it thicker or thinner you put it in between the incisors at the front and essentially it creates an anterior jig that separates the back teeth so you put in enough leaves to completely lose contact at the back if, the, if you put it in between the teeth and the patient closes on their back teeth and they squeeze they cannot feel any of the back teeth touch now this is essential that you completely clear the posterior contacts because if you don't, then that's when you don't really know whether or not you've stretched lateral pterygoid as much as possible. So if you only put in a few leaves and the patient says, yep, yeah, I only contacted the back here, you check with your paper and yep, yeah, there's only one tooth that contacts. Now, that might be the fully seated position, but it might not be. You might find that you can actually add a few more leaves and they're still contacting, but it's in a different position on that tooth. So it's mm -hmm. important you clear the contacts completely, fully stretch the lateral pterygoid, and then you start taking leaves down. Take, take leaves away. But, but, I'm just going to ask you a question, Mahmoud, which, which I actually get a lot, right? For those beginning to start with the leaf gauge, and they're like, how do I know how many leaves to start at the beginning? Is it just like a round? Is it, so I start with 15, so I start with 20? So what's your protocol? How many leaves will we just start with? I mean, to be honest, I'll start with 10, 11, something like that. Mm -hmm. If the patient yeah. looks like they've got a normal overjet, uh, overbite mm -hmm. relationship, if mm -hmm. they've got an anterior open bite, I'll use half the pack. Yeah. If they've got a really deep bite, I'll use maybe five. And then yeah. you just take it from there. Once yeah. you've done it a few times, you you start to sort of see it in your mind. You can eyeball it. But yeah, maybe for and you can get very predictable and, and consistent results with this. I think. And then the key lesson here, guys, is to make sure that you put enough leaves in, uh, even if it's just one or two extra, that the back teeth cannot touch. Just like Mahmoud said. So make sure no back teeth can touch. Exactly. So once you've ensured that the, none of the back teeth are touching, you're going to have the patient go forward and back. I let them do this for maybe 30 seconds because it just helps deprogram the lateral pterygoid and I'll get them go forward. So I learned this from you, Jazz. It's a great tip. Ask them to go forward like a bulldog. 
and then go back as far as is comfortable and I get them to mm-hmm. squeeze. Ideally, you want them to squeeze sort of half hard, as Jay Hartwong calls it, half hard on both sides. Can you feel any of your back teeth touch? They say no, then you ask, can you feel any tension or tenderness? The reason we ask is because I want to make sure that the lateral pterygoid has relaxed. If it hasn't and it's a bit tense, they're going to say maybe I can feel a little bit of tension. But the other thing you're checking for is essentially you're load testing the joint. So you're compressing that joint a little bit and seeing if there's any pain. If there is any pain, mm-hmm. then that joint isn't healthy. Do you really want to start messing around with someone's occlusion potentially with an unhealthy joint? So mm-hmm. once you've done that, just, just before you continue, Mahmoud, I just because uh, load testing. I mean, we can sp- speak for an hour just on load testing, but I, I think yeah. I think it's just worth just, just just having this visual. And you know, if, if you're driving, if you're chopping onions, whatever, just have this visual. If you're new to this concept, that if you've got these plastic leaves in between your front teeth, right, and you bite on these plastic leaves, okay, what's happening? The central incisors are going to be intruding within their PDL, okay. But then, what about all the rest of the force? Where's that going to, right? Well, if the leaves are contacting your incisors. Okay, and your and your muscles are going for it. The only other thing that could can now move is the condyles. So if the condyles are now going higher and, and pressing in to the glenoid fossa, you have now placed load in the TMJs. And this is what load testing basically is. We're now loading the, the glenoid fossa, we're loading the temporomandibular joint. And, and then just like Mahmoud said, if someone's saying, whoa, what, what on earth did you just do, Mahmoud? That really kills? Then maybe this is a complex patient. And you know what? Thankfully, these patients are rare. I've never had, oh, okay, like once maybe, and this, that was a TMD evaluation, so I was expecting it, right? Like a s- severe intracapsular issue that was acute that, that gave this response. So thankfully, this is rare. So I, know, I actually know some colleagues, very experienced colleagues, who said, you know what? I stopped load testing now because I realized that it wasn't adding much. I still think it's a good thing to do and good part thing to do with part of your notes because you, you never know when you can get surprised. But it Definitely, the, what I like about what you said, Mahmoud, and, and for those who, who might have missed it when you said it, is you're testing to see if they're feeling any tension. And that's the lateral pterygoid stretching. You want the position where when they're pumping half hard, just like Mahmoud said, they don't feel any tension. And that tells you, okay, lateral pterygoid is stretched, it's relaxed. It should be a nice and relaxed and comfortable position. It shouldn't be like aching there. And uh, what, what do you do, Mahmoud? If they say, yeah, you know what? I just feel a strange tightness up here and they're pointing to their master and lateral pterygoid. What's your protocol? So the, what I'll do next, if they say that, is I'll get a couple of cotton wool rolls. So I'll take leaf gauge out, get a couple of cotton wool rolls, put it over the molar area, and I'll get the patient to squeeze on it for a couple of seconds and let go. Squeeze on it mm-hmm. for a couple of seconds and let go. I'll do this five to six Between times. the molars. Between the molars on both sides. The idea there being is you're getting the elevator muscles to really contract and what they're doing is they're trying to seat the condyles up and forward because if you consider the vectors of the muscles that's the direction they're going to pull the condyle in and they're just trying to gently stretch that lateral pterygoid you know if you get a cramp in your leg and you're trying to stretch it out you pull pull your foot up same sort of thing once you've done that a few times put leaf gauge back in get them to go forwards back as far as is comfortable squeeze half hard on both sides can you feel any tension or tenderness most of the time it's gone yes agreed my experience as well and I just want to say, uh, Mahmoud, sorry for interrupting, but really important to mention that when Mahmoud is taking out that leaf gauge and putting in the cotton roll and taking out the cotton roll and putting the leaf gauge, at no point is a patient yeah. able or should be able to bite together. Make sure the patient does not bite together because then the, the neuromusculature just remembers again and they go into MIP or whatever and then you have to deprogram all over again. So really important point we haven't mentioned yet is that make sure their teeth don't touch together. Yeah, so the two keys really in terms of deprogramming is don't let the back teeth touch. And make sure that when you are dialing the leaves in, you fully clear the contacts at the back. Don't get complacent, think, oh, they're only touching one. Just get mm-hmm. some more leaves in there, make sure it's open, get them to deprogram a little bit, and then do your load test. 
Then if you're happy, then we do the screening. Mm -hmm. Carry on, I'm, I'm, I'm liking how this is going. So yeah, what next? Okay, so we load tested, we've deprogrammed relatively. And now we feel comfortable that the condyles are seated. Now we're gonna start taking leaves out. So again, patient opens, you stick your finger in there, so they close, take one leaf out, put leaf gauge back in, go forwards like a bulldog, back as far as it's comfortable, squeeze half hard on both sides. Can you feel any back teeth touch? Now you'll get to a point where they will say yes. And what I'll do at that point is I'll put my articulating paper in with the leaf gauge. So again, open up please, put the articulating paper in on the side they said they could feel it, leaf gauge back in, forward back and squeeze. Can I feel it sort of grabbing? If I can, I'll actually now check it on the other side as well. Why? Because mm -hmm. I got caught out that time. So I'll check it on the other mm -hmm. side. Often if they can feel it on both sides, I will actually add a leaf back in because it could be that they were touching before, but they just needed a little bit more pressure on the PDL at the back there to actually register. So I'll add yes. one more leaf and do it again. And ideally, I want to be able to get one tooth to grab shim stock with the leaf gauge in. So leaf gauge in, you know, I've identified where the contact is with my articulating paper, mm -hmm. put the shim stock over there, forward back and squeeze, tug. If it's catching that shim stock where everywhere else isn't, I know that I'm pretty comfortable that that is their actual central correlation contact point. Mm -hmm. And the question then becomes, is that the tooth that you are going to prep? If it is? Then you need to be careful. Then you need to take and take out everything we're going to say next. If it isn't, fine. You know, document it in your notes and you'll know for next time. You don't you have to do the screening again. So once you've found out that it is, then we need to start collecting maybe a little bit more information. Mm -hmm. So the next thing is probably to see, okay, now you've figured out that the upper left second molar is the first point of contact. And hey, guess what? You were going to do a customer coverage restoration for that tooth and you'll be altering that contact. And, and now what you're going to be doing is uh, figuring out, okay, what am I up against here? Uh, am I up against a patient here who the loss of space here is going to be so minimal that I don't even need to sweat anything? Or are we really at risk here of losing you know, everything? And then I better tell the patient, up front and maybe even this this treatment isn't even viable like we'll come to that those extreme ends right one is it doesn't matter i'll be fine and the other one is whoa you need ortho you need surgery we can't even do this so we'll, we'll talk about the, yeah. the end of Panic mode. yes yeah all right so most of the time you're going to find that if the tooth that is center correlation contact point or point of initial contact is the tooth that you're prepping usually you'll find that either a, it is the point of initial contact along with maybe another tooth that puts you in a low risk category because you know the other tooth is going to provide the programming for the lateral pterygoid. Or so for example, a, a tooth in front or a tooth on the other side, is that what you mean? Usually it's on the other side. Yeah, mm -hmm. usually it's on the Because if you think about it, when the leaf gauge is in at the front and both condyles are seated, the condyles are sort of the other two legs of the tripod, if you like. And you can imagine that if it's close enough, there's actually a little bit of bend in the mandible. So it's actually mm -hmm. possible to get two contacts. Yep. In fact, if you think about it logically, it's, it may be even more, more likely to have two unless one is really quite far ahead of the other. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. If they're yes, close enough, yes. there's probably two or at least close enough to be two. So if it's one of two contacts in central collation, then it's a very low risk. The other thing I like to look at is, you know, if you look at the picture, uh, you can see if the tooth is holding up, you know, the bite, so you're in central collation and that tooth is the only contact in uh, central collation, but the teeth next door look like they're almost touching and they've got good sort of cusp fossa interdigitation. Again, 
chances are you're A, not gonna lose that much space because those bottom teeth only need to move a tiny bit for them to hit the upper mm -hmm. teeth. So really, how much space can you lose? Not a ton. But yes. also, they're probably close enough together that that programming for the lateral trigoid is still gonna happen. Yes. Okay. And the last thing I look at is the sort of how big the slide is. There's a few ways of measuring it, if you like. I mean, the easiest way is just see how many leaves you've had to put in. That gives you an idea. We know that on a leaf gauge, on most leaf gauges, each leaf is about 0 0.1, you know, a tenth of a millimeter. So 10 of them is a millimeter. Now, if you, you know, remember from dental school, sort of opening the vertical anteriorly, three millimeters gives you about one millimeter opening at the back. You know, mm -hmm. That three to one ratio you can use. So if you've opened them three millimeters at the front, chances are they've only opened a millimeter at the back, which means to close them back to MIP, you need to lose a millimeter off of whatever's holding them up, which at the front is the leaf yeah. gauge, but at the back is your central collation contact point. The other way to do it is you can actually put the leaf gauge in, get them into central collation, get them at the point of initial contact, and measure the overjet. Mm -hmm. Then you take the leaf gauge out, get them to bite into MIP, measure the overjet again. Subtract one from the other, you've got the difference between the two, and that's actually the horizontal component of the shift. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, anything that's sort of less than two millimeters, or you know, anything less than one and a half, I'm probably not too worried, because it usually yep. means that the shift at the back is actually quite small. Correct. Okay. So, but, but Mahmoud, I, I mean, something I perhaps should have asked her earlier, but all, all these things mm -hmm. we're assessing, like if the rest of their teeth have got such a good mechanical interlocking that they fit so well into a jigsaw, even though they have that first point of contact, which you may be altering, do you subscribe to a theory that actually when they just go searching for their bite of best fit, they will just find it because the rest of the teeth, they just interlock so well. And that perhaps, and this, this is what I believe, and please tell me if, if you don't, is that you're more susceptible if you've got general tattered occlusion where lots of MOD flat amalgams and you really don't have a much of a bite to grasp onto. Would you agree that perhaps that patient would be more susceptible? Absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing as when we discuss sort of people with a risk of an anterior open bite when you give them an anterior only appliance. It's the same thing. So if they've got mm -hmm. good cusp to fossa contacts at the back, chances are they're not going to lose MIP when you get rid of one central correlation contact point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or they'll find something that is close enough. So yeah, the risk is, yep. is pretty low. So really, it's people with big shifts or people where when they're hitting that one contact in central correlation, you know, so what I like to do is I've got leaf gauge in, they're sitting on their central correlation contact point, I'll peel, you know, things back a little bit, I'll put my mirror in there, I'll have a look. If the teeth are really far apart, you know, in front of my the tooth I'm going to prep. So there's like a two millimeter gap. Then I'm thinking, okay, uh, I might be in trouble here. And mm -hmm. because for those teeth to come back together again, I know the mandible has to move up about two millimeters. Now, chances are it's not going to move a full two millimeters up. But if it moves one and a half, and I've prepped one and a half, I've lost all my clearance. Mm -hmm. And now I've got to prep yep. another one and a half, which means I've prepped a total of three, you know, with my eyes, probably four millimeters off the occlusal surface of this tooth. So it, I hope it's and, the, and these second molars <laughs> tend to have small clinical crowns because they've got that, you know, uh, not gingival overgrowth, but they, they you know, quite often they are small clinical crowns anyway from either wear or they have altered passive eruption of some sort for the gums. So you're already dealing with uh, smaller clinical crowns. Yeah. Yeah, so you, you don't really want to be adding millimeters to your prep, uh, or at least you need to know about it in advance. 
So you get driven plan for so it. So you, you found this high-risk patient. Um, I'm always fascinated by how do you actually sit them up and say, hey, you have this issue. It's, I mean, it's such a complex thing to explain to dentists. How do you even explain to a patient? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I think this is so key and it's the fact that it's their problem. So all you need to do really is just sit them up and explain what you see. Chances are nobody has ever put a leaf gauge in their mouth. No one's ever checked this in any way. And they will probably already be feeling, wow, this guy really cares or this guy knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So I sit them up and I'll say, sorry, Mr. Jones, my screening has shown that your bite is in such a way that if we do the treatment we were discussing and I try and put a crown on it, your bite might irreversibly change mm -hmm. to possibly a degree where you can't find your bite anymore. And in that new bite, there's no space for the crown. Okay, so the crown will be and, either and, and very And that's high. A, a, a common, you've explained that beautifully, but you know, for patients to actually grasp that, it, it, it's tough. It is. And you know, if you've got some diagrams or if you've got you know, a skull or, you know, I use the, the diagrams I'm, I'm showing on the screen now, um, because it shows a series of me prepping the tooth off of the models and, and showing them the bite mm -hmm. coming back together again. And mm -hmm. it is a complex thing to explain, but you just got to try your best to explain it. And yes. In my opinion, yeah. and they it, do it pays understand. Dividends. Yeah, I, I found patients do understand bite changing. So, you know, the, the fact that it's just one tooth and it's going to change everything obviously sounds a bit, well, really? That sounds like, mm -hmm. that sounds ridiculous, but you just have to have conviction in, in your, you know, yeah. in what you're saying because it's true. Yeah. I just like to add the way, the way I would say, it, uh, the way I do say it to patients is um, which we're prepare, preparing this tooth, which is right next to your joint. It's like the furthest back tooth, right? And so if you change anything to this tooth, actually you're so close to the joint, you actually change the joint a bit. And then if you change the hinges of the door, the entire position of the door actually might change. You know, change the hinge of the door, you, you completely all the angles go off. So basically what this means for you, Mrs. Smith, is that this is just a little bit more complex and you could have a bite change. And I love the fact that you also agree that bite change is the main thing because that's what they perceive. Uh, and then so therefore we need to take more care in how we treat you. And then instead of boring them with a whole plethora of further information, just tell them, here's what I'm going to do differently to prevent this from happening. But just know that it could happen. That, that's essentially, you don't want to overcomplicate it and do, you know, make it a half an hour discussion. No, you don't want to bore the patient to death. But they need to understand that this is something to do with their bite. It's not something mm -hmm. you have done or will do. You know, as the saying goes, if you tell them before, it's a reason. You tell them afterwards, it's an excuse. Absolutely. So this is a patient, if I want to describe it to our listeners, she's got a massive CR to MIP shift. So her first point of contact is on an upper left seven. You can see the palatal cusp is sort of dangling. You'll see this on a lot of patients the upper palatal cusp on seven. So the tooth rotates a little bit buckly and that palatal cusp is hanging down and it's hitting against the distal marginal ridge of the opposing six. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Remember that you can claim CPD for this episode and all the other 99% or so episodes that are eligible to claiming your CE or CPD certificate. As well as that, on the app, you can download it on iOS and Android. There's a whole load of exclusive content. There's a lot more planned. Like my biggest thing that I want to do early in 2023 is do VertiPreps for plonkers. 
right? So it'd be like a complete definitive guide to Verti Preps that I'm not going to post on YouTube. This is like going to take a lot of extra hard work. It'll be like a full online course, except I'm going to just make it extremely good value and just make it available to premium members of the app. So whether it's just getting CPD, finding the app in one place with all its content, being able to download the episodes and the videos to your device, being able to access the notes that come alongside the new episodes, or you want to get access to this exclusive content with my commentary, please do subscribe to the app, download it on iOS and Android. The download is free. You can actually use the app for free as well. It's really functional, really good. But to get the real juice, if you're a true onion chopper, then check out Protrusive Premium and I look forward to helping you in your journey of dentistry. So yeah, I've got this patient here. And when you look at the cast, you've got the upper left second molar and it's sort of rotated a little bit buckly, which you often see, which means the palatal cusp is hanging down quite a bit. That is the central correlation contact point or point of initial contact in central correlation when the patient closes. And it's the upper second molar palatal cusp against the lower first molar distal marginal ridge. And if you could see the photo, you'll see that actually when they are at that CRCP, the space between the other teeth is almost two millimeters. Now, this kind of patient scares me. If I see this, <laughs> I'm automatically thinking, at worst case scenario, is I'm gonna lose all of that space. I'm gonna lose a whole two millimeters. Now, I usually take about a millimeter and a half off of the occlusal, so if I do that and I lose two millimeters, I'm still gonna have another sort of two and a half millimeters I need to take off to actually get the clearance I want. Mm -hmm. So, if we cycle through the images, what I've got here is, this is how the patient would present to you. So this is her in her MIP. This is the bite she knows, okay? So she comes in, all her teeth touch. Yeah, that upper seven is sort of in, in midair a little bit and it's fractured. We're thinking about putting an implant in the bottom, but we're thinking, okay, we'll crown this tooth for now. You do your screening and had to put a ton of leaves in at the front because she's got a little bit of an anterior open bite. And lo and behold, that upper second molar is my central correlation contact point. And if you could look all around the arch, that is the only tooth touching by a mile. None of the other teeth are even close to touching. So that's why I get these models, because I want to know what's going to happen when I prep that tooth. Mm -hmm. and, and so do you get this, you know, do you do a face bow and get this mounted on a, a semi-adjustable articulator? Yep. Upper and lower impressions, face bow, because you want the upper cast related as closely as possible to where the condyle is and central correlation bite records. And then, so once I've got them out of the cast, I'll prep the upper second molar on the cast. So I've taken two millimeters off the occlusal. Okay, but these casts are still being held in central correlation. So once I undo the pin and I close the cast together, you can see the teeth close back into MIP and look at my clearance. I have zero it's clearance. Gone. In fact, in fact, the only tooth touching is still that upper second molar. So yeah. really the condyle might not seat fully but even if it goes most of the way there, I'm going to lose all of my clearance. For, for those uh, listening right now, I mean, uh, Mahmoud's shown very beautifully here. He's chopped that molar, good two, three millimeters, and the patient's now able to bite together as before, but also still pretty much biting on that measle of that second molar still. And it's a classic, it's a great way to show on the models what you may have experienced, and that's why you're listening or watching this podcast. And then that's what happened. That's a great visual. Yeah, so there's, there's two consequences to the last tooth and arch syndrome, possibly. A, you lose the clearance, which will look something like this. But worst case scenario in patient with big shift is you end up destabilizing MIP, meaning the lateral pterygoid no longer knows what to do and the patient cannot find their habitual bite anymore. And in this case, 
Once I've removed enough off of the second molar, so I had to remove another two millimeters to simulate getting enough occlusal clearance, the patient is only occluding on their first premolar on the other side. Mm -hmm. But that, that would be the new centriculation contact point, right? That, that new pro, that exactly. premolar contact is now, the, yeah, yeah. Correct. Now, I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but in order to properly inform the patient, I need to be able to tell them that A, this might happen, meaning I need to take more off the tooth, and B, if your bite changes, it could end up looking a bit like this. And they'll be like, well, I, don't, I can't chew on just one tooth. Like, I know, which means you might require more treatment. What that treatment entails, we'll discuss, but the important thing is it's not, you know, it's not up to us to really decide what to do. It's up to us to inform the patient of what their teeth and their jaw relationship are presenting us with and for them to choose what option best suits them. And so what options did you, did you give to this patient? So tooth, you might know, it's desirable to restore that tooth, but it's a high risk for this last tooth in the arch syndrome. And you've been wise and you've done your screening uh, up ahead and you've informed the patient and you've gone to the trouble of, you know, mounted casts and to actually create these beautiful visuals. So the, in the level of informed consent here is amazing. So how did you actually manage that? So with this tooth, uh, you know, the, the options in this case are, you know, that tooth itself, Luckily, it's endotreated, so we don't aren't worried about pulp, but we're going to need to prep more. Now, in this case, I've got space. If I didn't, what are the other options? So we've got, I could reduce the opposing. Well, so you, you said can, you got space. You mean enough height of tooth? Yes. Sure. So by prepping sure. it even more, if, if it's an onlay, you've got enough space. You've still got enough retention and, form. Yeah, and if you're onlaying it, you're relying on your adhesion. It depends what you're doing. So it's still restorable, still restorable. Despite three millimeters of adjustment, the tooth is, was still restorable. In this case, because it's an upper and it's maybe slightly over erupted. Okay. And that's not always going to be the case. If it's a lower, it might be a different story. And then you're having the discussion with the patient of, is this even viable? But ultimately, once you've got this information, you need to present the patient with options. And the options are going to be do nothing or how can we gain more space for, because you've got two problems, remember, you've got the losing occlusal clearance and you've got the bite changing. So the mm -hmm. options for losing occlusal clearance is prep the tooth more, prep the opposing, do ortho and move the teeth to create more space or open the vertical and restore more teeth. Those are really mm -hmm. your only options. Yeah. But, but even then, Mahmoud, like just, just discussing with you here, like, it's it, it's not written, and we're talking about risks here. It's not written that it's not guaranteed that the bite will change. So you know you do that, you no. do your initial 1.5 millimeters, right? And you know, let's say you get the patient bite together, you might find that the muscles are able to go back to their usual MIP, and then in this case, you got lucky. But it's all what this episode is about is identifying that high risk patient, and then having this exactly this conversation, and knowing your options ahead of time, and hope that it won't happen. And, and then that you know, just want to put it out there that okay, it's not guaranteed that this will happen. It just could happen. It, yeah, and that's the thing. And, it, and even if it does happen, it doesn't happen all the way. So I, I don't think that most of the time you will lose all of that space. The contact mats just seat a little bit until it gets to the next point of initial contact, right? And that's going to program mm -hmm. the lateral So the condoms might seat a little bit, but not all the way, and you haven't lost all the space. In which case, it's fine. Yep. But the question is, what if it does? So you need to yep. be prepared. Now, once we discuss the options for the space or the lack of, uh, then again, you got to just mention the fact that the bite might be completely different. And what are the options there? Well, like you said already, most of the time the patient will adapt and most of the time it will be fine. 
But if it isn't, you need to be able to explain to them that I might need to adjust your bite. So you're looking at equilibration, all right? So you're mm -hmm. looking at adjusting the contacts until more teeth meet in that centric relation position. And, and please don't do this if you have no experience. You know, don't go around chasing blue dots, please, right? Basically, because you listen to two guys on a podcast yeah. telling that this is an option, okay? This is something <laughs> that you need some sort of training and experience with. So yeah, is, uh, Mahmoud's just stating uh, equilibration is an option to, to manage the funky bite that the patient may have. Yeah, the other two options being ortho, or again, opening the vertical and reorganizing the occlusion. Now, we have a few things working in our favor that usually mean this, this is why we don't see this every day, you don't see it every month, is A, like we said, 90% of people that have a shift, that shift is under a millimeter. The other people that have maybe a slightly more elevated risk still have enough context around where that central relation contact point is to pick up the slack essentially and reestablish a new MIP or the same MIP, just with a slightly different slide. But also, and I haven't really sort of, you know, I don't have any proof of this, but in my head I'm thinking, especially us here, we tend to do indirect restorations on teeth that have broken quite severely in a way. Right? We generally don't tend to, you know, put indirect restorations on teeth that haven't had a cuspal fracture. Now, what mm. are the chances that the cusp has fractured because it used to be the centric relation contact point? And that mm -hmm. patient, whenever they hit and slide, have overloaded that cusp and then that cusp fractured. So in fact, what's happened is that patient has lost that central collision contact point before they even walked in. And you pick yeah. up your leaf gauge, you put it in the central collision contact point somewhere else because, well, they broke the cusp that used to be the central collision contact point, and then you're gonna cram the tooth. And you haven't changed anything because it all happened once that tooth broke. So mm -hmm. I think that's partly why we maybe don't see this as often as we do. So it does sound like, okay, well, this is, not really going to happen to me, or maybe it'll happen once or twice in my, in my, uh, mm -hmm. in my career. But but when it does happen, it's a it's a big deal. It's, exactly. it's a big deal because usually you haven't preempted it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's called last tooth in the arch syndrome. It's like you know, it's making it sound like really dramatic. And, um, <laughs> you know, it sounds horrible, but if it's happened with all the sequelae of you losing space and by changing, it's that is a big deal. I mean, this patient might be looking at ortho, might be looking at a rehab. Who's paying yeah. for that? Chances are you are. Yeah. So for a two minutes screen that you can do, and once you get good at it, it's, it's really, really quick. Um, just to buy yourself that peace of mind and being able to inform the patient and gain proper consent when you're restoring the terminal tooth or maybe the one in front, that two minutes is, is worth it in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, before we talk about some strategies of prevention of this happening in those high-risk patients, let's address that poor guy or gal who's joined this podcast now and, and, and thinking, oh my God, I, I just discovered this thing called last tooth of the syndrome. Mrs. Smith is like totally pissed off at me. What the hell do I do now? And they send the patient home. They just put some composite on like a, some bond or something just to uh, seal the tubules maybe. And they're like, okay, I have no idea what to do now. You, I know you went over the options, but uh, any advice you can give to, to that dentist who joined us? Okay, so if you've already had the condyle seat and as long as when you put your whatever it is you put on your bond your your, your composite you haven't re-established a new centric relation contact point so you haven't put it in high i would wait and see if that patient develops or you know adapts to the existing new occlusion if you like all right and then assess from there if i would do the screening again once they come back after you know a few weeks do the screening again Chances are you'll find that their central collision contact point is on a different tooth now because you've prepped the old one off. And if it is on a different tooth and they are comfortable and they have a stable MIP, then you're back to square one. Then you need to mm -hmm. assess whether you can still prep the tooth or not. Is there enough space? 
If there isn't, what are you going to do about it? Again, it's a discussion mm-hmm. with the patient. Explain what's happened. You tell them what the situation is, and then the options are kind of like what we discussed, because yeah. you need space. So either you're going to prep the tooth more, you're going to prep the opposing, or it's ortho. Or, or, or I mean, theoretically speaking, crown lengthening to actually give yourself more retention form, whatever, but it's very difficult to do crown yeah. lengthening and efficacious and stuff, so it may not be a real world option. So yeah, fine, that, that's good. But l- l- let's say we found the high-risk patient, but in the real world, we're not all as meticulous as you, Mahmoud. We're not going to get our face bow out and do bounded cards and stuff. You're too good with that. So what are the strategies, the, the top hacks, the so- top secret hacks that we're going to share with everyone watching listening to prevent this being an issue, even those high-risk scenarios. Okay, so I'll cover this, but I'll just caveat that a little bit. I, I want to differentiate between sort of the low to medium and the medium to high risk. I think someone with the scenario we saw where when they were sitting on their central collation contact point, the, the vertical change is almost two millimeters. I don't know that I would use a hack because I, I would still be scared. I think it's the ones that are sort of in between where the you know, you can see a little bit of space, you know, a millimeter and a, you know, a millimeter between the teeth, and you think, okay, there is a good risk they might, you know, shift a little bit. There's two things I would, you know, consider. My personal favorite is before I numb the patient, before I do anything, I'll get a triple tray, which uh, for people that don't know, a triple tray is a, it's like a quadrant tray and it's flat. It's got a metal handle and like a mesh on it. And the idea is you put your putty on the top and bottom of it and then you squirt your wash over the prep and you actually put it in and the patient bites on it. So the reason it's called triple trace is because you're capturing your prep, the opposing and the bite all in one go. Mm-hmm. Now what I do with it is I put bite registration material on both sides, put it in, I get the patient to bite together in MIP. All right, mm-hmm. And it's critical that once you've done that, let it set, take it out and put it up to the light. And you want to see pinpoint holes where the light is coming through, where the patient bites into MIP. The reason is, if they aren't there, then they haven't bitten in properly, and maybe the, the bit of metal going around the back is in the way or something like that. Okay, but, but once then, you've but moment, why, why, why use a triple tray here? Why not just squirt in a bite reg material on its own? Because essentially you're just capturing a half side bite. Yeah, it's just easier to handle, because I'm going to be taking okay. it in and out, and I just find like just a piece of bite reg is maybe a little mm. bit more difficult. But easier to hold, have, um, a bit more nurse proof, I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So once I've done that, and I've got this bite, the key with that is that bite needs to stay in the mouth at any point that the patient might bring their teeth together. So it's in while I'm prepping and it only comes out when I'm doing my, so it's, it's in when I check my clearance, all right? It comes out when I'm doing my scan or my impression because one point I think we haven't mentioned is when you're dealing with last teeth in the arch, always take a full arch impression. I know mm. with scanning, you might get away with it a little bit more. But, you know, paranoid, so full arch scan or full arch impression. The bite goes back in afterwards. The bite is there when I'm doing my temporary. The bite is there when I'm checking the occlusion on the temporary. And the reason this can work is basically it's preserving or trying to preserve the programming of the lateral pterygoid. So those engrams that are telling the lateral pterygoid to pull the condyles down a little bit. That To be able to get into that bite, that programming has to remain. But also, mm-hmm. all centric relation shifts into MIP well, at least most of them, are not like straightforward. Okay, there's usually a lateral component to it as well. Meaning that bite can hold the mandible for and stop it moving laterally, which again, hopefully means you don't lose the shift. Yeah, so I learned this trick from Lenochi mm-hmm. a while ago. 
Uh, he's got a very interesting name for it if you if you look it up. You could say it. Go for it. He <laughs> calls it "Save Your Ass Bite." Yeah. So I, I taught my nurses. Um, can I get an SYA, please? <laughs> and they know that they know I need my uh, bite ridge for one side only. <laughs> so so that's a, that's a good way uh, of doing it. The other way which uh, I, I do digitally is, is in that in that low to medium risk patient is you scan the uh, both arches in a, in a pre prep. So you do the pre prep scan. So you get the uh, unprep teeth, both opposing and the the working, and then you scan the bite from the beginning. And, send, and, and then that way, the lab get the pre-operative anatomy. And if that anatomy is okay, is acceptable, then they can copy the features into the final crown and hopefully not disturb the balance. But, but also, we're, we're, we're getting the bite already. So at no point will the patient be encouraged to bite onto their prepared tooth. You can actually just get them to bite when they've got the temporary in place. And hopefully, you've minimized the risk. And so the more primitive version of that, you know, 10 years ago would have been, just make sure the patient doesn't bite together. Just make sure the patient doesn't bite together at all. Keep the patient's mouth apart at all times, basically. And, and, and that was the other way of, of doing that. What do you think about those ways? Yeah, I mean, it does come down to whether or not you sort of want to preserve MIP or are you trying to preserve the slide? So mm -hmm. the island prep, the, you know, scan the tooth prior and sort of copy the anatomy are, are things that are trying to copy the or reincorporate the slide. And, you know, in a patient who doesn't show a ton of wear or, you know, as we'll, we'll cover certain things in, hopefully on the course in terms of identifying patterns of wear. You know, someone who shows excessive wear on their second molars, but virtually nowhere else, maybe someone who slides into their center collation and grinds. Now, if they do mm -hmm. that and you see evidence of that and then you replicate what was there before, you might find that your restorations are being overloaded. Mm -hmm. And whatever broke the tooth might well break your restoration. So mm -hmm. I, I haven't been brave enough to try the island prep, which is, mm -hmm. I believe you've tried it. Yeah, and uh, so just to, just to briefly describe it, you mark up that contact, the slide, the centrifugation contact point or point of initial contact. And then because when you wash the tooth and you prep the tooth, that red mark or blue mark is going to wash away. So you put a tiny bit of bond on it to preserve that marking, the colored mark. You prep the tooth as normal, but you preserve that contact area on the tooth. And then you do your impressions and, and, and bite reg as normal. And then it's over to the lab. And what the lab will do is the lab will actually prep it away and they'll make a little a Duralay coping, and then they'll send the crown, the properly made crown, and the coping to you. And so then I just put the coping back on the tooth. I prep away that little uh, sticky outy bit, which was the slide, if you like, and then my crown's now gonna seat. The interesting thing that happened, Mahmoud, when I did this technique is the patient came back a few weeks later with a hole in their zirconia crown. I've never mm -hmm. actually seen this. Can you imagine a hole in the middle of the zirconia crown? Wow. So what had happened is that I must have prepped a little bit too much on the island, okay. Yeah. So, so now where the uh, the crown was um, had you know forty microns of cement space everywhere, in that one area there was maybe uh, let's say arbitrarily one hundred and twenty microns of cement space in that one area, right? Yeah. And then I didn't put enough cement either. So it's, you know, so, you know, when mistakes happen, it's compounding of errors, not just one error, right? Yeah. And so I must have not put enough cement. So there was cement, cement, cement everywhere, and underneath that zirconia where the island was, was air. So it was zirconia, air prep, where everyone else was zirconia yeah. cement prep. Uh, and so that's what, how my technician and my eye came up with the conclusion. Uh, so you yeah, had to see her again and, and make her a new crown, interestingly. <laughs> so that was my experience. So I uh, just thought, thought I'd share that with you. Well, no, that's, it happens, right? That's the thing. You, know, you, you try your best and 
stuff will still come back to bite you. But the last tooth in the arch did not bite me at that time. So yeah, we can, that's yeah. another way of doing it. Anything we've missed, you think? I think I think the most important takeaway messages are screen for it. It takes two minutes. Have the conversation with your patient. And, you know, this may have sounded like a really depressing lecture where, okay, I'm never going to put up second molars again because your bite's going to change and the patient's going to sue me. 90, 95% of the patients, or you know, 95% of the time, this is not a problem. You've mm -hmm. probably been in this situation and just prepped the next half a millimeter because you thought, oh, okay, maybe that, maybe that burr's a bit thinner than I thought, or, or whatever. And chances are this is, uh, you know, this, this has happened time and time again, and you haven't noticed. So I wouldn't mm -hmm. be too worried about it, but now that you know, uh, it's easier to just scream and then have the conversation with the patient. Because if you don't, and then you do get caught out, you're going to be feeling really silly that you listened to the podcast and still didn't do it. Very true. And uh, I think just, I, I just want to wrap up by saying that even those, you know, when you start screening and you start, get, start getting good at the leaf gauge, you know, it gives you, it opens up so much in the world of occlusion and treating more teeth and moving out of single tooth dentistry. It makes you think whole mouth, right? And then that's when dentistry becomes more fun. So, you know, start screening your patients anyway, every time you're doing suspect restorations where, you know, this, this could be a phenomenon, even though it's going to be rare, it gets you into good habits of screening. And then, you know, sometimes it'll be like a low risk or a medium risk. And you know that, hey, from my risk assessment, I might lose a half a millimeter of space here. So you know that the worst case scenario here is I can just prep half a millimeter more. And if your tooth can, can take it, then you're at peace. But if you find a really challenging dental scenario, but more importantly, that dental scenario is on a, not a challenging tooth, but a challenging person, a challenging human, that having, you know, just you dread conversating with this patient, then the best thing about being a GDP is the ability to cherry pick. Now, because you've been smart and you've done your assessment and you know that, okay, this could be a full mouth case here. Uh, I don't wanna just deal with this angst with this patient. I can't be bothered with this. Say that you're a really complex place. Your bite is really screwed up. Um, here's a prostodontist I don't like and, and ship them there, right? So, <laughs> so you can always, you know, I'm just saying, screening is a wonderful thing. So if there's anything you take away from this episode is screen. And then you can choose where you wanna treat that case. And most of the time, things will just sort out. Absolutely. The flip side of that is if you are comfortable treating more complex cases and now you've discovered how to screen for this, this also opens up the area of you having the discussion with the patient of, you know, the other way to do this, because you've got plenty of other teeth that need restoration, should we start thinking about maybe long-term comprehensive treatment? So that opens the door to have that discussion and maybe you're able to stabilize that patient and treat more teeth, do more comprehensive fun dentistry on someone who needs it. And it's all come about because of this one broken molar and you doing your best, you know, to try and treat the patient, you know, as, as best as you can. And you've discovered this issue and it just opens the door for a natural conversation to flow. Very well said. And that, and that patient who you're treating that compromised upper left second molar, to use that example again, and you're right, they've got like these MOD amalgams and leaking composites, full mouth, they've got significant wear, multiple cracks, and they would actually benefit from cuspal coverage. And by maybe increasing their OVD, you can actually do quite conservative restorations that you don't have to even drill so much and give them a really aesthetic result as well, then it really opens up a lot of opportunities for you to start, you know, to do comprehensive dentistry. To do it, you first need to think it and communicate it. So by doing this, the more you practice communicating, it might be your 30th or 40th patient that you you get slick at talking about it. And then you say, actually, Ms. Smith, you know, your crown on this side was done in 1970. Your crown, your MOD amalgam here was done in 1980. The, this filling was done five years ago. And you've just got like a patchwork, one tooth at a time. 
and your bite's not very stable. And so you told me, Mr. Smith, that you know your main thing for you is that you want to be able to, to smile, you want to improve your smile, you want the teeth to look withstand time and, and, and minimize how much dental care you'll need in the future. And therefore, this might be a good time, if it fits in your life, to consider something a bit more comprehensive, just like you said, Mahmoud. Would you like me to assess you with those eyes? And if they give you permission, then do your full occlusal examination and give them some options. Exactly, exactly. And you know, once it comes from them presenting with an issue and you relating everything to their long-term goals, it's a very natural, comfortable conversation. It's exactly the kind of conversation I like to have in, in order to progress onto complex dentistry. Okay, so Mahmoud, th thanks for giving up your, your time to talk about this a very geeky topic. I know me and you are, are super into it. Not everyone's into it, but I think what me and you are on a mission is to make occlusion really practical. And one of the things that we're setting up in our course is one of my aims is not to say the word mechanoreceptor even once. That's my aim, okay? Because I want to show people videos and photos of teeth, of dots and lines, and say, hey, do this, do that, don't do this, prep this, and, and refer that. And that's really the angle that we're coming from. But who is the ideal dentist out there that our course, OBAB, Occlusion Basics and Beyond, is going to benefit? Uh, I know it's such a cheesy answer, but really, we are aiming for it to appeal or, or, or serve uh, as many dentists as possible. But if you are interested in sort of taking on more, whether you're interested in taking on more complex cases or whether you just want to do the simple cases but do them really well and really predictably, and you've always thought that Occlusion just sounds a bit too confusing. It sounds a bit too abstract. It's you know, it's not it's not something I can visualize. It's not something I can I can I can really see in my mind. Um, my aim, even though I've said mechanoreceptors maybe twice, sorry, um, <laughs> in the lectures, but it comes with pictures, and genuinely for me personally, I I'm a very visual person. I need to see how things work. And once I can see them, I can extrapolate. So that's the idea behind how I've sort of we've structured the courses, mm -hmm. making it really tangible, making it really something you can see how it works and understand it, and then apply it to all the different situations. Ma guys, Mahmoud's made some really cool videos and photo series of you know articulators step by step by step by step. And for those of you who joined us for the video part of this, if you actually saw when he prepped that tooth and how it's seated. When you look on YouTube and stuff, you'll only ever find cartoons of that. You know, he's actually done models, and this is the kind of visuals that Mahmoud's got throughout the entire course. So we kind of split it in half. I've covered half. Mahmoud's covered half. Mahmoud, you're into more your tools and stuff in terms of uh, articulators and face bows and stuff, and you love that. I try and do as much as I can without relying on articulators and face bows. I try and just eyeball it. Uh, and so we've got two different approaches, but we marry it together in terms of okay, fine. This is this is how we do it. But what we cover is why, when. Okay, and when not, uh, and and that's what I'm, I'm super excited to, to launch this. So, guys, when we're ready for OBAB, I will email you, and you'll hear about it in the podcast. But if you haven't listened already to Basics of Occlusion Part One and Two, check it out to get a little flavor. But very exciting times ahead, uh, and we look forward to getting this out to you. Yeah, really, really excited about it. I think it's going to be something that's really, really different to what's out there. I really, really mm -hmm. think so, and it will take you from the basics all the way to beyond. You know, talking about like you know. Uh, pictures and series and stuff like that. I'll take you through a wear case that shows every type of wear you can imagine. And I'm waxing in the contacts one by one and you'll see step by step and I'll give you the reasoning of why we do certain things and how we're, this is all about force management. And once you see it and it, once it's there in your head, you will, you will understand the concepts and then you'll be able to apply it to whether you're doing you know, you got just a class four, or you're doing four composite veneers, or you're doing a full math rehab, the concepts are the same. 
that's that's the aim really is for you to be able to do from A to Z knowing that you ticked all the all the boxes knowing the that you understand why certain things need to be done and not just blindly following uh, an occlusal religion as we like to call them yeah, I think me and you are, uh, I wouldn't say we're atheists. I think we've had lots of influences in different religions. And I don't, I don't want to say we're starting our own religion or cult or anything. We're just, we're going to pick, okay, we like this from Coyce and we like this from Dawson. And, and here's how we do it is with a mishmash. And, you know, why don't you try implementing this and seeing that actually we found that this, is a, this works better in our hands in day-to-day general care. Me and you are busy practitioners and we're in the real world, wet finger dentistry. So that's what we hope to share. So thanks so much, guys, for, for listening all the way to the end here. And we look forward to seeing you on OBAB. Thank you very much, Jez, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Well, there we have it, guys. For those of you who are listening, and some of the visuals there were amazing. Honestly, that second molar visuals that Mahmoud created, I would just go back to YouTube or the app, ideally, and go back to those points. They, those are absolutely golden. So I hope you enjoy that. I just want to say a thank you to April Whitlock and Nani Fulford. These are two ladies, lovely ladies and fantastic dentists who on the app, the Protrusive app in the community section, actually asked for this episode. This episode was supposed to come out much later, but because I couldn't say no to them and they, and they posted it in the community section of the app, I was like, okay, we're going to do it for you. So this episode was dedicated to you, April Whitlock and Nani Fulford. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast in the way you do. I'll catch you guys in the next episode, same time, same place.